Hello, it's Wednesday, the 24th of January, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon j a n g w o North Korea fired multiple cruise missiles towards the Yellow Sea in the morning, the latest provocation amid escalating rhetoric between the Koreas in recent weeks. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. Rival parties unveiled their plans to address the nation's record low birth rate last week. In a special two part in depth, we take a closer look at the urgent issue and what needs to be done. And coming up for Korea Book Club, we have a new short story collection from the international booker shortlisted author, Hora Chung. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. North Korea launched a number of cruise missiles into the Yellow Sea on Wednesday morning. The provocation comes in the wake of emboldened rhetoric by regime leader Kim Jong un in recent weeks as he pursues a hard line stance against South Korea. Our KBS World Radio news editor Gu Hijin joins us in the studio now to give us details of the latest provocation as well as our other headlines of the day. Hijin, hello. Hello, Jagon. Let's jump right in. Can you give us the details of Wednesday's launch? Well, according to Seoul's Joint Chiefs of Staff, the missiles were detected at around 7 a.m., and intelligence authorities in South Korea and the U.S. began scrutinizing the details of the missiles, while the JCS said the Allies are closely coordinating under reinforced surveillance and vigilance. and monitoring uh, further developments in the north. The v- missiles, which followed a circular trajectory, are presumed to be the Hwasal-1 and the Hwasal-2 strategic cruise missiles, which the mis- uh, regime claims are capable of loading the Hwasal-31 uh, strategic nuclear warhead. The test using either variant is presumed to be an attempt by Pyongyang to demonstrate its ability to target the entirety of the uh, Korean peninsula as well as the US forces Japan with a nuclear attack. Wednesday's provocation marks the first detection of a North Korean cruise missile launch since last September, but comes only 10 days after Pyongyang launched what it claimed was a hypersonic intermediate range ballistic missile. Sticking with news related to North Korea, the speculated arms transfer between North Korea and Russia appears to have been confirmed with the discovery of a handwritten Korean character on a ballistic missile fired by Russia into Ukraine. Can you tell us more? Well, according to the UK-based Conflict Armament Research, or CAR, on Wednesday, its investigators found a label with a handwritten consonant in the Korean alphabet, Hangul, on a fragment of ballistic missile debris. The uh, discovery was made during the organization's analysis of missile remnants from the strike on Ukraine's second largest city of Kharkiv on January 2nd, adding there was no further detection of Korean on other components. Uh, CAR added that the wreckage examined included distinctive jet vane actuators, the bolt pattern around the igniter and the repeated marking of the number 112, concluding that the missile is likely a KN-23 that was manufactured in North Korea. The analysts posited that the numerical marking refers to either the February 11 plant, where such missiles are reportedly assembled, or the 2023 equivalent on uh, on North Korea's Juche calendar. Meanwhile, the Kremlin said on Tuesday that a visit to North Korea by Russian President Vladimir Putin is unlikely to take place before the March presidential election. What can you tell us? 
Well, Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov made the remark to the shot Telegram channel uh, when asked if such a trip could happen before the election set for March 15th to 17th, saying that there are more long-term plans. Peskov added that the uh, Kremlin assumes that when the schedule is agreed upon, the president will take advantage of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un's invitation to visit, which was extended to Putin at the two leaders' summit in Russia last September. Last Friday, Peskov said the dates for such a visit were still being discussed through uh, diplomatic channels and would be announced later. The Korean Central Broadcasting Station, uh, the North's domestic radio service, said on Sunday that uh, Putin expressed his willingness to visit North Korea at an early date during his meeting with Foreign Minister Chesoni at the Kremlin. Speaking of elections, let's turn to the US now, where it looks like the upcoming presidential election in November has gotten one step closer to becoming a rematch between current President Joe Biden and his predecessor, Donald Trump. That's after the latest Republican Party primary in New Hampshire. So what's the latest? Well, Trump secured another victory on Tuesday over Nikki Haley, his former US ambassador to the United Nations in the second 2024 Republican uh, presidential primary, uh, as you said in New Hampshire to follow up on an overwhelming win in Iowa last week. Earlier, CNN reported that Trump had won 54.2% in Tuesday's primary with 82% counted to uh, Haley's 43.7%, forecasting a victory for the one-term president. Congratulating Trump during a ballot counting, Haley said she will not drop out of the race, which has become a two-way match after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis dropped out after Iowa. Trump, who served as president between 2017 and 21, has been leading in the polls with over 50 percent support, despite facing four criminal indictments. On the other side of the aisle, uh, Biden won the Democratic symbolic New Hampshire vote, uh, despite abstaining from uh, entering after the state party pushed ahead with the primary in defiance of the National Party's decision to designate the South Carolina contest the first. Turning back home now, a Seoul court has upheld a fine imposed on Google worth 224.9 billion won, or over 167 million US dollars, by the Fair Trade Commission. So what is the fine for, and can you give us more details on the ruling? Well, the Seoul High Court on Wednesday dismissed an appeal by the U.S. tech giant over the fine handed down for prohibiting smartphone manufacturers like Samsung Electronics from developing or installing operating systems using Google Android algorithm. In the ruling, the court acknowledged the fact that the company monopolized the Android OS market, adding that such actions are tantamount to an abuse of market dominance and interferes with uh, business activities through un unfair practices. The FTC last September sent Google a correction order, noting that despite an Android's uh, open source nature, the tech company banned manufacturers from developing project forks to create a new code using Android as a source. The state watchdog imposed the order and fined three companies, including Google LLC, Google Asia Pacific and Google Korea. Continue on now to the weather. The bitter cold wave that began on Monday 
is expected to carry into Thursday before abating. Can you give us the latest? Well, morning lows on Thursday will fall to minus 10 degrees Celsius in Seoul with similar uh, or slightly warmer temperatures compared to Wednesday's forecast for the rest of the nation to range between minus 16 and minus 1. The daytime temperatures will climb to zero in Seoul and minus 2 to 6 above nationwide, about 3 to 4 degrees warmer than Wednesday with the cold wave expected to gradually ease starting Friday. However, heavy snow is expected in the western Chola regions before stopping on Wednesday afternoon, while Jeju Island is likely to see accumulation of 5 to 15 centimetres in mountainous areas until tomorrow. Uh, temperatures in the mountainous areas of Kangwon will fall to around minus 20 degrees Celsius. And finally, the number of newborns last November plunged below 18,000 to set a new record low for the month. Can you break down the figures for us? Well, according to Statistics Korea on Wednesday, 17,531 babies were born in November 2023, down 7.6% from a year earlier to log the lowest tally for the calendar month uh, since the state agency began compiling related data in 1981. The cumulative tally for 2023, likewise, fell to an all-time low of 213,572, down 8.1% from the previous year. Meanwhile, the number of deaths last November rose 0.3% on year to an all-time high for the month of 30,255, with the state agency citing the ageing society and the continued effects of COVID-19. With deaths outnumbering births in November, the population naturally declined by 12,724, continuing a 49-month streak of decline since November 2019. Yes, and we're delving deeper into the low birth rate issue next. But first, we wrap up our news briefing here. Heejin, thank you for the updates. Thank you. Last week, rival political parties unveiled their strategies to confront one of the nation's most pressing challenges, the chronically declining birth rate. The ruling People Power Party focused their plan on improving parental leave, while the main opposition Democratic Party placed their emphasis on affordable homes and financial assistance. The packages come as South Korea's total fertility rate fell to a record low 0.7 in the third quarter of 2023, a rate far, far short of the replacement level of 2.1, which would keep the country's population stable at 51 million. Today, we're embarking on a special two-part series delving deep into this pressing issue of the low birth rate. In the first instalment, we'll dissect the contributing factors that have brought us to this critical juncture. And next week, we'll explore the potential solutions to this complex challenge. And for that, we have two guests joining us in the studio today. First, we have Professor Kim Joon from the KDI School of uh, public policy and management. Her academic focus is on social demography, gender and work. Professor Kim, hello. It's great to have you back on the show. Thank you for inviting me. And we also have our regular economy expert contributor with us, Professor Yang jun from the Catholic University of Korea. Professor Yang, hello to you too. Happy to be here. Okay. So first, Professor Kim, can you help lay out for us how severe South Korea's low birth rate is? Can you give us the stark facts? Um, it's very bad. 
South Korea has been maintaining total fertility rate below one since 2018. And the worst part is there's no sign of recovery. And um, total fertility rate below one means that it is expected that average Korean women are expected to have less than one baby during their reproductive years. Mm. And then uh, assuming that we need to at least 2.1 babies to reproduce the population size, uh, below one fertility rate is very alarming situation. And um, when South Korea reached total fertility rate below 1.3, and in academia, we often call it as lowest low fertility because it's considered to be very low in international standard. And top demographers in Europe and North America, they predicted that don't worry, South Korea, it's going to be a temporary transition, that everything's going to be okay. And Italy, Spain, and Greece, and all other European countries has been there. And then you guys are going to be okay in a few years. But obviously that didn't happen. Mm. And um, the sad part is that based on population projections, it is expected to decline even further. And um, according to the recent reports by Statistics Korea, it's estimated that by 2024, uh, the current birth rate is 0.7 something, right? And it's going to go even further below 0.68. And maybe a bit of recovery in 2026, but still it's going to be far below one. And um, some experts reported that because we have a chunk of chunk number of uh, population born in 1980, uh, 1985, so these people, when they enter, you know, this marriageable and childbearing age, they're going to have a um, good size of babies, but that's not going to happen based on recent marriage trends. So young people are not marrying at all, which mm. means that there's not going to be baby. So, yeah, according to many population reports and government reports and uh, uh, public academic publications, it's going to be um, bad in the future as well. Sure. So uh, less people marrying, therefore less people having children leading to this situation. Professor Yang, uh, how severe is this situation? What kind of consequences are we facing? Okay, well, the uh, two seri- most serious part will come from, I think, growth and welfare. Uh, if uh, When we uh, think about growth, the contribution of growth usually comes down to growth in labor force plus growth in capital stock and growth in uh, productivity. Uh, and what we're worried about is that with the uh, low population growth, the uh, growth in labor force may become negative. Uh, that will bring down the uh, growth rate for the country. Uh, now, I don't think that's as serious a problem as problem that we're going to have with welfare. Uh, because, well, I said that uh, growth, uh, population growth is one component, uh, one con- contributor to total growth rate, but there's also the increase in capital stock and increase in efficiency. So if we can get our efficiency uh, high enough, then that could uh, could, uh, that could uh, reduce the effect from reduction in the uh, labor force. So it's very important to uh, increase the wealth, uh, efficiency of the uh, productivity of the economy through things like uh, R&D development in science and technology, uh, increase in cap, uh, human capital through education reforms and regulatory reform. Uh, that may even help increase uh, capital stock through uh, more investment uh, because the uh, returns to capital would go up with higher uh, if uh, productivity. Uh, but welfare is 
a much more serious problem. Right now, we have about what, uh, four young people, four working age people for every retiree. Hmm. So that means it's fairly easy to gather up money to uh, provide for the uh, retirees to try to uh, pay for their uh, uh, welfare. Uh, but it's around 2050, we're going to have about 1.3 working age person per retiree. And not every working age person will be working. Some will be in the army, some will be having babies and so on. Uh, so it'll probably be very close to one retirement person to one uh, working age person. Hmm. That means if you want to give, say, 10,000 won to every uh, retiree, you're going to have to gather up 10,000 won from every working age person, and that's going to be unsustainable. So uh, this, uh, in terms of how we're going to uh, budget welfare, uh, this is going to be a very serious problem. Uh, but we've been spending about 332 trillion won since uh, 2006 to try to raise the birth rate, but it has been a spectacular failure. Uh, in uh, 1960, the uh, total fertility rate was 5.9, believe it or not. In 1970, that went down to 4.5. 1990, 1.5. Uh, and then uh, currently, as uh, Professor Kim mentioned, it's 0 0.7. So uh, all this money has not been able sure. to turn around the long-term trend. Yes, it's a very dire situation. We've talked about some of the consequences. Perhaps let's take it back, though, to why this is happening in the first place. Today, we'll largely split it into two sections, uh, economic and then social and demographic reasons. And we'll start with the economic reasons and go back to you, Professor Yang. Can you take it away for us? From an economic perspective, what are the factors that have contributed to South Korea's chronic low birth rate? OK, let's look at the long-term factors uh, if we use international comparison, then we usually see poorer countries have higher birth rates. Uh, and there's some uh, economic research shows some of the reasons why that may be so. Uh, poorer countries tend to be agricultural, and in agricultural economies, children mean having more uh, helping hands uh, with very little additional labor costs, so it actually pays for you to have kids. Uh, and then secondly, children act as a welfare policy. These countries do not usually have government set up uh, welfare policies. So the more kids you have, especially more boys you have so that they have property rights when they grow up, uh, that means uh, more comfortable you'll be after you retire. And then third, there's very little cost in raising children because you're an agricultural society. You don't necessarily have to educate them. All you have to do is feed and lodge them. Uh, so in that sense, you get a lot of payoff for very little cost. It's a bit strange talking about your children like that. Uh, <laughs> right, but sure. we can, uh, I think uh, people who are maybe 60 or older can remember the days when it was up to the sons to take care of their parents. So this is just technologizing that phenomenon. Right. Uh, but now, because of uh, social changes, because of technology changes, because Korea has become much more of a knowledge-based economy, none of this applies anymore. Uh, so now, uh, if you want to have children, you don't really have that much of an economic gain. Uh, you have a lot of cost. That means uh, you have to have sort of your internal justification for having children uh, more than economic justification because those don't really exist anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have to get a lot of enjoyment from having your kids. Uh, 
but the problem is if you look at the uh, kids in the last couple of generations, well, they haven't really had time to play around when they were young. Uh, they had to go and study all the time. They were always competing with other kids. Uh, they didn't have time to really get to know their parents. All they saw was parents sacrificing so that uh, they can pay and raise their kids, pay for their education and so on. Uh, so uh, in their minds, I think a lot of them really don't see any justification for having children. Uh, if I have children, I'm going to get hit with a lot of costs, uh, but I will not get any enjoyment. And perhaps more importantly, my children will not really enjoy themselves. So I think that is a major contributor to uh, uh, birth reduction in recent days. So some very interesting points there. Professor Kim, uh, any reaction to what uh, Professor Yang has uh, mentioned there? Yeah, I mean, I agree. And there's a lot of scholars agree that now kids are becoming a cause and risk. And then a lot of people are concerned about direct cause of raising a child. But there's another concern, which is that, you know, they are not so sure that whether their kids are going to have a happy life. Right. Um, like you mentioned, uh, we grew up through, you know, putting our lot of efforts and time and energy to for Sunung and SAT. And then we don't get to enjoy a lot of other things like having community and family-based activities. And then you realize that once you enter good university and then maybe you are successful enough to get into the Samsung or Hyundai, you good corporate, still you are facing a lot of uncertainty and you don't know what's going to happen in the next five years. So you don't want to pass that kind of life onto your children. So... Yeah, there is a high risk and then costs associated with raising children. I agree. Right. When we say economic costs as well, Professor, you mentioned education. The high cost of raising children in Korea has often been cited as a major burden and hurdle. But how does that compare, really, with other countries? Is it really that much more expensive here in Korea? OK, well, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, you are... Population Research Institute of China did an interesting research. Korea is the most expensive country to raise a child as a multiple of per capita GDP, uh, per year average income, uh, 7.8. So when you raise your kids for 18 or 20 years, about 7.8 uh, years worth of income is going to go to raising that one kid. Uh, now compare this to other countries. Uh, China, it's 6.9, it's ranked second. Uh, Germany, 3.6. France, 2.2. Uh, US, 4.11. And United Kingdom, 5.3. So Korea is absolutely uh, by quite a margin on top. And about 36% of this cost is due to private education cost. So it really costs a lot to uh, raise a kid in Korea. Right. Uh, in addition, it's uh, there's also the facts of uh, what having children means for your careers, especially for women. It's not uncommon to see married women having to take either uh, a career break due to pregnancy and childbearing or having to quit their careers altogether. How has this contributed to the birth rate as well? How much of a big factor is this? OK, well, in most countries, if you have children, then you do take a cut in your lifetime income. But the problem in Korea is that it's among the very highest country in terms of this uh, so-called childbirth penalty. Uh, so uh, childbirth penalty for uh, Korea is 49%. If you have a child, then your lifetime income for a woman who has a child will be cut uh, compared to uh, women who do not have children by about half. Now, uh, 
uh, again, this is uh, among the uh, highest percentage cut in uh, in the world. Uh, China's uh, childbirth penalty is only about four uh, percent. North America, uh, so it's United States and Canada, it's about twenty five percent. So uh, Korea is extraordinarily high, uh, and we have to get. Uh, an idea why this is so. My guess is that it's from uh, labor market rigidity. It's a paradox. Uh, But the fact that we try to protect jobs for these women may be actually making it harder for them to have children. Uh, If you read interviews about why uh, working women cannot have children, well, they do have legal rights to uh, maternity leaves. Uh, They do have legal right to take some time off for uh, their children. Uh, But because it's very hard to employ temporary workers to replace the mother who takes leaves. Uh, The uh, most cited reason why they do not take maternity leaves or have children is that uh, they do not want to look bad in front of other uh, of their colleagues in their workplace. Uh, Now compare that to United States which has a very flexible uh, labor market. You don't necessarily go back to your old job but you can get a similar job elsewhere uh, so your career doesn't necessarily cut off after you have children, and right. their birth rate is about 1.7. So labor market rigidity may be responsible for uh, this uh, child care penalty for working women, but it may also be responsible for high education costs, right. because the reason we have high education costs is you want to get into good college uh, to get a good job. Right. Uh, so underlying uh, force for a lot of these problems sure. may be labor market rigidity. Sure. Professor Yang has looked at this issue from an economist point point of view, but he has also touched upon a lot of uh, social reasons there as well, it seems. So, Professor Kim, uh, let's turn to you now. Let's look at this issue from a social and demographic perspective. What reasons have contributed to the country's low birth rate, in your opinion? So if you are asking why South Korea is maintaining below one, then we need to ask why young people are avoiding marriage. So avoiding partnership and marriage is not just Korean situation. It's observed in other countries, such as Hong Kong and other East Asian countries, who are at the leading edge of this low fertility. And then let's look at how East Asian countries are so different compared to other high-income countries. It's one is patriarchal family institution, and second is they're famous for having a culture of overwork culture, right? So let's talk about overwork culture. So I recently conducted a study that examined association between, you know, overwork and then young people's intentions to marry. And I found that overwork is normally defined by those people who are working more than 50 hours per week. And then those people who are considered to be overworking uh, compared to those who are doing regular work, uh, who doesn't have additional shift, no unexpected uh, overwork uh, burdens, who does 40 hours per week, uh, these person, the overworked individuals, are less likely to have um, intentions to marry in the future. So in the future means that they don't want to marry in the right now. They don't want to marry indefinitely. So um, I asked why this is happening. And then the key mechanism is that they're emotionally exhausted. They're not happy with their life. They're tired. They're exhausted. Of course, these people are depleted with work, no energy and no time. Of course, nobody wants to commit to a relationship that requires a lot of energy and attention. So 
one uh, takeaway from this is that it's not just story of economic loser. It's also those people, winner of the current economy, who is doing good job uh, in the uh, in the labor market, is also struggling to establish and sustain lifelong relationship. And then implications from this research is that current policy is specifically aiming at supporting work-life balance for. Uh, families, those right. with family responsibilities. But we need to address single workers' concern uh, over work-life balance, and it's also critical in upturning fertility rates, in my perspective. Right, so the government policies, while it may look at the economic reasons why mm. this isn't happening, is perhaps not answering some of the other sides of why people aren't marrying. For example, you said if people aren't happy, they don't want to marry, and mm. therefore you need to address that as well. Is this a situation seen across all demographics in Korea? Uh, if not, which demographic is showing the lowest birth rate and why? Um, when it comes to marriage rates, there has been an increasing gap between college graduates and then high school graduates. So meaning that uh, speci- specifically for men, uh, men with college graduates, they're all, everyone is declining in terms of marriage rates, but uh, men without college degrees, they're uh, experiencing steeper decline in marriage rates. But the important part is that everyone is experiencing a rapid decline in marriage rates. So uh, there's multiple descriptive statistics when it comes to income. So a lot of scholars look into the association between income quartile and then their decline in birth rates. And then, of course, they found that there's a steeper decline in birth rates among the lowest income quartile, the right. considered to be um, working class. And then, um, but the problem is that, so if we just look at this statistic, then the policymakers will say that, oh, then we need to provide more money to this working class. But that's not really the case. If you look more detail into this issue, it's not the problem of absolute income that predict higher fertility. It's um, in the statistical model, once we control for, you know, employment security and asset, the in- the effect of income disappears. So impact is no longer predicting mm. uh, the fertility rate. So asset matters, which means that financial stability matters. So, um, for example, let's say I'm making twice as much as you uh, per month. But if you have parents who have like rich parents, then you're likely to have, you're more likely than men, me to uh, have children in the future. So, um Another thing is that then why these middle class people who have good income and good asset, they're also avoiding marriage and childbearing. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, they're also afraid of uh, facing downward mobility, especially for their children. Um, they followed, you know, this legitimate route to success through hard work and then deferred gratification. But many young adults are facing declining chances to live up to middle class expectations. And then the fear is translated into avoiding childbearing. So, um it's my message is it's not simply money problem. Behind money, there is a right. fear of mobility and then stability. Right, so today we've talked about the causes of the low birth rate in Korea. Next week, we'll be talking about uh, some of the possible solutions and what needs to be done. But for now, that is where we're going to leave it for today. We've been speaking to Professor Kim Joon from the KDI School of Public Policy and Management and Professor Yang Jun Suk from the Catholic University of Korea. Thank you both for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index fell 8.92 points, or 0.36% on Wednesday, to close the day at 2,469.69. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also fell 
shedding 3.90 points or 0.46% to close at 836.21. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 3.61 against the US dollar, closing the day at 1,337 won. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. It's time for our daily segment now, Korea Trending, where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. And for that, we have with us in the studio now, news editor Daniel Che. Daniel, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. It's good to see you too, Jang-woo. What do you have for us first today? We have the latest on a hit-and-run incident that occurred last August involving a driver of a Rolls-Royce who was behind the wheel while under the influence of drugs. Yes, the so-called Apgujang Rolls-Royce incident that resulted in the death of a woman in her 20s. What more can you tell us about the court verdict? Yes, the Seoul Central District Court handed down a 20-year prison sentence on Wednesday after concluding that uh, this person, surnamed Shin, is guilty of various charges, including fatal hit-and-run. On the day of the accident, August 2nd, the 28-year-old took psychotropic drugs at a nearby plastic surgery clinic under the pretense of undergoing surgery and then got on board his car to begin driving. Judges found that he did not heed his doctor's advice of not driving after taking the drugs. Yes, and Shin had claimed that he left the scene to get help for the victim, but the court did not side with him on that claim, right? Yes, the judiciary reached the conclusion after taking into account the fact that there are numerous witnesses who said that Shin fled the scene. Shin claims to have rushed off to seek medical help out of concern for the victim, but that runs counter to how it disappeared immediately, even before emergency rescuers arrived. Witnesses also said Shin displayed behavior unbefitting of a person in the right state of mind during the time of accident, laughing while he was being arrested, even before the sight of a person hit by his car and severely injured. Yes, and tragically, the 20-year-old victim remained brain dead for months after the accident and then passed away in late November. That was the update we previously discussed back then. We now know more about Shin's attitude in the following months as well. According to the victim's legal counsel, Shin showed no change in attitude, showing no remorse while still adamantly claiming he is innocent. The doctor who provided Shin with the drugs is also undergoing prosecutorial investigations over allegations of sexually abusing his patients after injecting them with drugs like propofol. Yes, another disturbing development in this terrible case, but uh, it does look like Shin will face a long, long time in prison. Let's uh, move on to our second story of the day now. What do you have for us? Korean architect Cho min has been chosen to design this year's Serpentine Pavilion in London, England. Yes, OK, so this is a temporary pavilion next to a wonderful gallery in London called the Serpentine Gallery. And every year, architects from around the world are invited to build a temporary structure. It is quite the honour and a validation of an architect's status in their industry. Can you tell us more? According to the British Daily The Guardian on Monday local time, the Serpentine Gallery has chosen Joe for the project and seeks to have the final product ready by June to be displayed from the 7th until October 27th. The Serpentine Gallery chooses an architect that hasn't worked on British buildings since the year 2000. For over two decades, renowned artists from around the world, including Frank Gehry and Zaha Hadid, have been given the honor of being chosen. Many who pass through this project have gone on to win the Presker Architecture Prize, which is considered to be the Nobel Prize of the architecture industry. Okay, so what can we expect f- uh, from uh, Cho Min-suk uh, for this project? 
Uh, there's growing excitement and anticipation for what the Korean artists will deliver. This will be the Korean art architect's first building in the UK, and the first visuals of the designs by the 57-year-old founder of Mass Studies was revealed recently. Named Archipelagic Void, the pavilion will feature unique structures in Kensington Gardens, including a gallery, a library, play tower, and a tea house. Many traditional Korean elements like uh, are infused into the designs, including those from classic traditional houses. The wooden structures will utilize modular frames akin to traditional Korean architectural techniques. Joe studied architecture in Yonsei and Columbia University and established his company Mass Studies in 2003. Some of his standout works include the Boutique Monaco and Space K Gallery in Korea, as well as the French Embassy Building in Seoul. Well, it'll be really exciting to see what it looks like when it goes up, and it's great to see a Korean architect get this sort of recognition uh, as well. Let's continue on to our last story now. What else do you have for us today? It's confirmed Major League World Tour Seoul Series will be held in March. Kupang Play, the official partner of this special event, announced the dates and the matchups on Wednesday. Yes, it is exciting news for fans of both Korean and American pro baseball. Can you walk us through the schedule? Right. The series will take place on March 17th and the 18th at the Kochuk Sky Dome. MLB teams featured the LA Dodgers and the San Diego Padres. KBO teams, Kium Heroes, LG Twins, and a Team Korea. Team Korea will consist of national team favorites like Kim Hyesung of the Heroes, Lo Shiwan and Moon Dong-ju from Hanwha, and Won Tae-in from Samsung and Yoon Dong-hee from Lotte. Right. Also, of course, the San Diego Padres have two Korean players as well. The gold glove winner Kim Ha-sung and pitcher Ko Seok, who has just signed with the team. And then the LA Dodgers has the biggest star in the sport right now as well. Japan's Shohei Otani, who signed a record $700 million dollar 10-year deal with the Dodgers. So seeing him in action is going to be a real treat for fans here as well. So how many matches are there going to be and who will be facing who? Well, first of all, those superstars will not make the cut to Team Korea, unfortunately. <laughs> Indeed, yes. <laughs> so four games will be featured in total at 12 p.m. local time on March 17th. The Dodgers take on the Heroes. At 7 p.m., it's Team Korea against the Padres. On the next day, also at 12 p.m., it's LG versus San Diego. At 7 p.m., Team Korea versus the Dodgers. After these four special matches, the visiting MLB teams will face each other on March 20th and the 21st. Part of the MLB regular season schedule, actually. Fans can start booking their tickets from Friday. Okay, that's all for today's career trending. Daniel, thank you for bringing us those stories, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for having me. Truth is, I am Iron Man. Hong Korea, this is Bob Layton, co-creator of Iron Man. You are listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. Continue on now to Korea Book Club, our weekly segment where we delve into the world of Korean literature and books through works in translation and beyond. With me now in the studio, it is the one and only literary critic, Barry Welsh. Barry, 
Hello, it's great to see you. Yes, hi, it's great to be here. Okay, so what are you introducing to our listeners today? Well, this week we are reviewing an eagerly anticipated uh, short story collection called Your Utopia by Chong Bora. And the Korean title of this book is actually Kunyorul Manada, uh, which translates as To Meet Her. To Meet Her is the name of one of the stories in the collection. I'm not sure why the English translation has been called Your Utopia after the name of one of the other stories in the collection. But anyway, that's the the reason for the difference in the Korean title and the English title. Mm. So the English title is Your Utopia and uh, the Korean collection was published in 2021 and this English translation by Anton Har is actually set to be published in February. Right, I believe it's actually going to be uh, published in late January, at the end of the month. Oh, I see, okay. in Korea it's coming Uh out in February. Oh, right, okay. Either case, we have an early exclusive okay. review then <laughs> That's right, uh, uh-huh. before it hits the shelves proper. Uh, yeah, right. Fantastic. Yeah. And so, uh, and of course, uh, Chong Bora is uh, most famous for her short story collection, Cursed Bunny, which came out a couple of years ago. And that garnered uh, a significant attention and praise for its blend of horror, uh, science fiction and uh, fairy tale elements intertwined with uh, sharp social commentary. And uh, Chong has a background and education in Slavic languages and literature and, and Polish and and Russian, and she brings elements of this uh, of these perspectives to her short story writing. Uh, and so the stories in Curse Bunny were infused with a kind of blend of uh, Korean and European literary influences. Uh, and her stories are known for their surreal and fantastical elements. Uh, she often explores themes of identity, alienation, uh, and the human condition through a, a distinctly uh, contemporary lens. And her work has been pla- praised for its originality and depth and uh, often for challenging readers as well with uh, complex uh, narratives and uh, featuring rich and imaginative landscapes. Uh, and uh, listeners will be happy to hear that Your Utopia is another uh, innovative and thought-provoking collection of short stories uh, featuring everything from uh, workplace satires to cannibalism, pandemics, uh, alien wives, sentient cars, uh, post-apocalyptic worlds and much, much more. And uh, I think fans of Curse Bunny and Chong Bora in general will find uh, much to enjoy in this new collection. That is quite a list of topics <laughs> indeed. But yes, as you said, this is a highly anticipated book because Cursed Bunny uh, did make such an impact on readers in the last couple of years, especially after it was shortlisted for the International Booker Prize. And at Slime's site, this short story collection continues to display her uh, dark wit and biting satire. Mm-hmm. So what more can you tell us about it? She's uh, known for uh, dropping her readers into new and bizarre worlds. What sort of worlds and stories do we encounter uh, in this collection. Right, yeah, so uh, what I think makes uh, your utopia particularly compelling is this ability that uh, Chong has to craft stories that are at once fantastical and deeply human at the same time. So her characters are often placed in, uh, you know, like you said, bizarre or extreme circumstances, but these stories are rendered with empathy and depth, and so this, I think, allows readers to connect with the struggles and aspirations, no matter uh, how strange or outlandish they might be. So, uh, and this even extends in this collection to non human characters. So, for example, in A Song for Sleep, uh, th- this, uh, that story is written from the perspective of an elevator, uh, you know, an internet of things, you know, a, a hyper-connected elevator that falls in love with one of its uh, regular passengers. Very strange love story. Uh, <laughs> and you, this sort of desperate yearning that we see here is this sort of yearning for an impossible connection is at heart very moving and very human. Uh, and this idea of non-human characters struggling to survive 
can also be found in the title story, Your Utopia. So this is set in a dystopian future where humans have abandoned uh, the planet. And having abandoned the planet, we have left behind uh, our smart cars and smart buildings and all of these other sort of uh, very technologically advanced and AI-run devices, which we're now, of of course, increasingly uh, coming to see and use and and to experience around us. And the smart car protagonist of the story has to survive this hostile environment where some of the other sentient machines have kind of turned into uh, monsters that are seeking to destroy or dominate uh, the post-human landscape. Uh, and all through the story, this uh, smart car, he yearns also for some kind of connection, right? some kind of relationship. It's you know, desperate to um, keep other robots alive or other machines alive. And it's a very sad commentary on the world that we're creating where interpersonal connections are uh, increasingly mediated through technology or through AI or, or through things like that. And overall, I think what Chong is saying in this story and, and in the collection in general is that utopia uh, is found in connection with other people and not in these sort of technological advances or the sort of hyper uh, modern world that seems to be coming our way. Right, we can already see her incredibly imaginative mind at play here. I mm-hmm. love that idea of an elevator falling in love with one of those passengers. Yeah. Just mm-hmm. the idea itself sounds so tragic and <laughs> compelling yeah. as well. Uh, Chang is also known for blending different genres as well, like surrealism and dystopian fiction. Do we see that at work in this collection as well? Right, yeah. So uh, that is that's something we saw in Curse Bunny and it's something we see here too. So uh, one of the other uh, very entertaining stories is The End of the Voyage. And this is a blend of a pandemic satire, a kind of a zombie outbreak story and a sci-fi story. So a strange pandemic sweeps the world, uh, causing societies to crumble and people everywhere to be thrown into disaster array. Uh, And this disease causes people to become cannibals but not the mindless zombies that we usually see in a zombie movie. So the victims just develop an an uncontrollable urge to eat people but otherwise they're the same they're they're just the same lucid everyday people that you would otherwise uh, see uh, around you Mm. but this means that you can't tell if someone has the disease because they don't look like a movie zombie they just look and act the way they normally would until they start trying to uh, eat you Uh, And in desperation, uh, a world government sends a group of people into space so that they don't get infected and can return to the planet at a later date to uh, repopulate the Earth or just to try and uh, pick up the pieces in some way. And of course, there are complications and things don't go as planned. Uh, And the story resonates because, of course, we've just been through a pandemic, which resulted in uh, people and governments acting in uh, very strange and uncommon ways. And the experience of the pandemic seems to have tipped us as societies into seeing the world as altogether more unstable, perhaps, than we once thought it was. And so Chung's using this uh, blend of genres in this story to sort of talk about that situation. Uh, and, and she sort of does so with a great deal of uh, surrealism and humour. Right, and that's such an ingenious twist on the zombie idea as yeah, well. Right, zombies uh-huh. you don't even know, uh, you don't know are zombies. Chilling, but hilarious at the same time as well when you yes, think about uh-huh. all the scenarios. Chang is also known for her critiques of society as well, especially through her use of uh, dark humour and irony. And we can already see that in some of the stories that you mentioned already. And that is something uh, that's continuing in this collection as well, it seems then. But understand that there are also some more mundane 
everyday settings as well. Right, yeah. So uh, the, the, this is a, a theme that we might we see in a lot of modern Korean fiction. So in uh, we find you know Chong talk, making critiques of modern Korean workplace culture for uh, young millennials and also of sort of contemporary Korean uh, marriages. Uh, and in the first story, the Center for Immortality Research, the protagonist is a young woman uh, and she's a low-level employee at a research institute. And this story essentially depicts the pay of being a low-level young employee who's constantly bossed around, uh, harassed, uh, you know, tasked with impossible projects or putting embarrassing situations and is just generally underappreciated, uh, underpaid and unloved. Un, uh, uh, and the tone of the story is sort of wryly uh, humorous. But of course, what, what the, the story is talking about is actually a very important issue and one that many struggle with. There was actually a trend recently on social media for young women posting videos of how stressed out they were at work and the story kind of encapsulates that same kind of thing. Chung's using satire to sort of show how ridiculous the situation is for people such as the story's protagonist uh, and again sort of using this wry humour to kind of comment on that uh, and then in another story called In uh, A Very Ordinary Marriage, uh, a man discovers that his seemingly perfect wife is not who she says she is and in fact might be from another planet altogether and again this story is sort of you know, superficially amusing like the concept and the way it's set up but it's also deeply uh, sinister uh, and at the same time an exploration of uh, you know modern marriage or, or sort of marriage expectations uh, and Chong does this kind of thing very well you know using genre and humour and irony uh, to surprise and engage the reader So this sounds like another fascinating collection of stories from Chung. Her debut English language collection Cursed Bunny was very highly praised Does this new collection measure up? Oh, so overall, so I don't think this collection is quite as surprising and, and uh, as uh, uh, fresh or original as Curse Bunny was, but Your Utopia is a compelling and uh, you know beautifully uh, crafted collection that uh, definitely solidifies uh, Bora Chong's uh, as a significant voice in, in modern literature and modern Korean literature. So she has very imaginative storytelling uh, often combined with you know, profound thematic explorations and I think this is still a, a, a collection it's a must-read for those who seek uh, literature that's both uh, stimulating and uh, emotionally resonant. I see. So while not as groundbreaking as Cursed Bunny, it sounds like another fascinating collection that builds on her reputation as a highly original and exciting mind in the literary world today, both in Korea and overseas. So that was Your Utopia by Bora Chung, who, uh, which will be published in February. Barry, thank you for another thoughtful review and we'll talk to you again next time. OK, take care. And that's where we wrap up our show today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon Jang-wa. Thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye.